Morning. <laughs> Sorry, there was a theoretical bumper at which I, which point I disentangle, and so I'm, I'm not disentangled yet. There we are. Um, hi, my name is is Rachel Toon. I am uh, the dean of spiritual formation at Montree College, which is right outside of Asheville, North Carolina. Are there any Carolina people in the house by any chance? Anybody got family there? Yeah, that's right, the Havens. Come on. Uh, so that's, that's, that's my current tribe. If you also happen to uh, notice my name, I am a citizen of Toon Nation. And so uh, Pastor Mark is my dad, so I was born and raised here. I'm very grateful to, uh, to be invited back. Uh, but most important of all is as of five weeks ago, I'm an auntie. You may applaud me. Yes. Yes, I'm an auntie. There's my girl, Cecilia Grace, my brother Cooper, and my beloved sister-in-law, Deb, uh, had this, this dear, sweet little thing five weeks ago. I think we've got a few photos of her. I was just blowing up the slides. That's her cranky old man glare. That's kind of her standard go-to, and I love it. Uh, so she is just the best. She's the best. And, and, and my, I've only been a, an active auntie for a week or so since I've been back in town. And uh, since that point... I've learned two primary things about babies that you all probably know already. One, they're awesome. So, like, it's weird how it's it's never boring to just stare at them. Like, it's always fun, and it's kind of creepy, but I but I love it. Uh, So they're awesome. But two, all of their stuff is such a scam. Like, maybe I think you all probably had known that before, but this was news to me. Because I'm, I'm a sucker, man. So, like, my, my brother, he's got this baby harness parachute-looking thing to carry her around in. And it's probably got the tensile strength. He can hold up a VW bug. And I'm just like, the, the child's eight pounds. Okay, you could strap her on with duct tape and a belt, and it would serve the same purpose. But, no, we got to have, like, the engineering. Or I was in, um, in tractor supply last week because I live in Appalachia, and that's, that's what I do. I get stuff at tractor supply. Uh, and I found this. And I, I compulsively bought it. Like, I don't even remember what happened. I, I just I suddenly was standing outside the store, and I'd spent $15 on a thing that's not even the full length of a dollar bill. And it, it's, this isn't the Nordstrom rack. It's tractor supply. I mean, it's just, it is a complete scam. And I'm, I'm convinced that somewhere there's the cute baby stuff crime syndicate that knows that we will spend a ridiculous amount of money on this crap. And do you know why? It's science. Okay, y'all, all y'all are biological suckers. And I am too, because we get overwhelmed with the cuteness. Like our brains explode. And then we just lose all ability to make good decisions. That's what happens. And so, my, and so of course, I have not been the only person contributing to the, the cute baby paraphernalia of my brother and my sister-in-law. So when baby Cece came home six weeks ago, uh, they walked into an apartment filled overflowing with bassinets and the little, what's the little swingy things? Uh, and cute blankets and little rattles that go on her hands and at least 47 bows that don't fit her, but it's still cute. And the, the harness thing that you can jump out of a plane with. And that's just... How it works, right? That's what new parents do. And the gear is higher tech these days, I would imagine, than some of of y'all who had kids maybe a while back. But I would expect that the story is the same, that from time immemorial, new parents have nested and inherited cute little hand-stitched things and whittled cribs and just ramped up the cuteness factor of whatever apartment or house or tent or hut or igloo or wherever they live, uh, that that's just 
That's just what you do. That is how the story goes with new babies and new parents. Except for this one, actually, the one that we're going to read. Because the story of Jesus' birthday is very different. And so uh, we're in a series called Not What We Expected. And our hope and prayer for you this morning, that as we jump into this, whether you've heard this story a thousand times or this is news to you, that you are in fact surprised by the story of Jesus' birthday. Uh, So we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, if you're old school like me, and you want to flip to your paper Bible, or on your phone, or whatever, and I think it's on the screen, so you've got all kinds of options. So in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so, and everyone went to their own town to register. And so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, which is the city of David, uh, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him. uh, And she was expecting a child. And then while they were there the time came for the baby to be born. And so Mary gave birth to a firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So the, the birthday story of Jesus starts with this notably inconvenient executive order. So the government gave directions and then everybody had to do the thing. And so, do you catch it right? So, so, they, so the, this guy, Quirinius, whoever he is, is a very difficult name to say. Um, he wants to take a census. Uh, and why do they do that? For taxes, right? They want to count people and charge you more money. So everyone's mad about this, but it's just what happens. Uh, and the problem was you were supposed to register in your family of origin's hometown. And Joseph currently lives in Bethlehem. Or sorry, Joseph currently lives in Nazareth, went off to college there or whatever, I don't know. Uh, But his family is from Bethlehem, so he has to go there with Mary to register. But Bethlehem is a 90-mile hike from Nazareth, right? And you don't load up the minivan to go. You're walking. So Joseph and a very pregnant Mary have to take a road trip 90 miles for this ridiculous government thing that everyone's probably really mad about. And there's another problem Uh, because this is an executive order. Everyone has to do it. And in 2020, the the directions are stay home, don't go anywhere. The opposite is happening here. Everybody has to go. To quote Appalachia, all y'all need to hit the road. And so everyone and their mother and their donkey and their dog and their second cousin are traveling right now. So think like SeaTac the day before Thanksgiving pre covid or Snoqualmie Pass over Christmas break, or Disneyland in July. I mean, it's a nightmare. It's just an absolute nightmare. It is packed. And so by the time Joseph and Mary actually show up where they need to be in Bethlehem, there is literally no room left. Nothing. And fortunately, they had a host family who was willing to get creative. So if you've heard this story before, you've probably heard it like this, and they wrapped cute baby Jesus in swaddling clothes, and they laid him in a manger uh, because there was no room for them in the inn. inn. Yeah, so if you're old school church people, you know that. It's the inn. Um, but that's actually not terribly helpful uh, because there are two Greek words for the place you stay if you don't live there. There's inn and there's guest room. And that's really important here because... Bethlehem was this podunk, backwater, middle-of-nowhere town. There was no Motel 6. There was no inn. They didn't need one. 
Uh, but you 21st century people, you know what to do with this, right? So if you want to go somewhere and you don't want to be in a hotel, what do you do? Airbnb. You Airbnb, right? Y'all didn't invent that. <laughs> It's been around a while. And so that's precisely what they were doing in Bethlehem. They were airbnb uh, And so to get a gist of how this works, it's actually kind of helpful to, to look at the layout of what a house was. And I'm a nerd, so just, just humor me, will you? Um, so here's how this works. Most of the houses back in the day, they had three rooms. So you've got the middle space here. That's the family living room. And by living, we mean all the living. So mom, dad, kids, cooking, sleeping, eating, homework, whatever. It's all happening Straight up open concept, okay? On the right, you'd have the guest room. That's separated by a wall, so that's the only private space. That's the Airbnb. And on the left is the place where you park your vehicles and you park your tools and you store all the stuff that doesn't fit in your living room. Uh, So it's the garage slash stable. So it's actually attached to the house to the extent that, if you'll notice, the mangers are actually built into the floor of the living room so the animals could, they could feed the animals at night and not have to go outside. Pretty smart, actually, if you think about it. These people knew what they were doing. So that's, that's the setup of the floor plan. And so I, I can empathize with this to a degree. I live in a cabin in Appalachia. I love it. It's really fun. Uh, it's open concept, not necessarily inspired by this, but nevertheless, I think we've got some pictures up there of, of my house. There it is. It's my palace. Um, and so it is open concept loft kind of thing, and it's said, I love it, it's really spacious. Uh, the only thing is, whenever we have company, it gets complicated. Actually, it completely screws my life up. Uh, so my, my master bedroom in the loft, that gets sacrificed for the greater good. I get demoted to the bottom bunk bed uh, of the room downstairs. Or we have one bathroom in there, so like, that's a nightmare, right? Because you're always tripping over someone and trying to choreograph all that, and... Uh, and things just overflow, both physically and otherwise, right? Any corner that can hold stuff, that, that piles up pretty quickly. Any closet and tempers tend to overflow, right? As you start to get a little bit crazy. Does anybody here have a house where, like, your company come and, like, you want to love them, but it does ruin your life? Like, be honest, right? <laughs> and so that's, that's kind of my, my experience. And so I love that house. I love hosting, but I realize that... For any extended period longer than 48 hours, my life gets totally disrupted. And whatever mess is in my house, both physical or metaphorical, tends to surface. Because you just, you can't hide it. You just can't when someone is living in the middle of your space. And what we see in the Christmas story is not that Mary and Joseph got sent outside to the barn in a different building. They got invited into the host family's personal space. In some combination of the garage and their actual living room. So what if my brother, with Cooper and Deb and baby Cece, came home not to their cute little cozy private apartment with all that pile of baby stuff that rattles and blinks and whatever. Um, But what if they actually came home to your living room? Your garage, right? And zero privacy, constant chaos, very minimal comfort, just kind of thrown right into the crazy. And our response is like, wait, that's not supposed to work like that. That's not what you do with a new baby. Right? Come on now. And it's especially not what you do with with this baby. Because if you read, if you have to look closely, but there's actually a really important detail about who Jesus is that just, that, um, that Luke just slips in there. And so Joseph, Jesus' adopted earthly dad, is from the house in the line of 
David. So that's King David. A thousand years before Jesus, he's a big deal because way back when, King David was given a promise by God. Because God said, look, I know the world's a mess, and I'm going to do something about it. And how that's going to work is from your family, I'm going to send one king to rule them all. He's going to establish a kingdom that is never going to end. He's going to be the one to make everything right. And this king is going to be your great, 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 great grandchild. So that's the promise that the people of God have had for a thousand years. Nothing has happened. So they're still holding out. They're still waiting. So it, over at, at Montreat College, we, uh, uh, we run Alpha with our students. Uh, and I believe Ch- and Chapel Hill does Alpha also. So if you got questions, like you're curious about the Jesus thing, but you got questions. Maybe a little skeptical or you've never really done the Bible church deal. And you just need to kind of work some stuff out. Alpha's awesome. I highly commend it to you. My college kids and I, we have a really good time doing it. And so with that group of of kids, we're doing the 90-day challenge where we read a chapter of the gospel every day for 90 days. And so the very first verse of the New Testament is Matthew 1, chapter 1. And it's, this is the genealogy of Jesus, son of David, the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Genealogy of Jesus, Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. And at first glance, you're like, that's an incredibly lame opening line. I mean, you think all this time you want to do, ta-da, New Testament, and it's super lame. Uh, It's not, actually, uh, because of all that verse packs into itself. So after giving a 30-second recap of the Old Testament to these students who don't know the Bible at all, one of them stops me and goes, wait a minute. So Jesus and David and Abraham are all related. Yes. So Jesus is the king. He's the one they were waiting for this whole time. Yeah. Sure enough, crushed it. I mean, right there, that's most of what you need to know about the Old Testament uh, is getting you ready (laughs) for baby Jesus. Jesus is the king. He's the one that for thousands of years the people of God were hoping for and praying for and waiting for. He's the, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the one by whom and for whom all things were made, the word of God that spoke creation into existence, and he doesn't even get his own hotel room. That's where Christmas lands us. And what if that's actually the whole point? What if he doesn't want his own hotel room? What if Jesus wants to be right in the mess, in the anarchy, in the chaos of your living room with Zoom school and a work call and trying to get everybody snacks and do laundry and all of that stuff? What if that's where he wants to be? What if he doesn't want to be relegated to the fairy tale, cute stable barn thing over there that never actually happened? (laughs) What if the mess, the chaos, is where he wants you to invite him so that he can do something about it? Because he's not a little baby anymore. He's big enough to lift stuff and carry some boxes around and move out some baggage. And what if those host parents had said no, that host family? Because they could have. You know there were moments, there were moments where that blessed woman who invited this couple in her house was losing her mind. She was overwhelmed. She was stressed out. She was sick of having people in her house. You know that happened. You know that baby Jesus' arrival in this little family's living room messed everything up. And what would they have missed if they either didn't want the chaos or were too proud to invite somebody in to see their own chaos? What would they have missed out on? Would have been a real loss, huh? 
So I have uh, in my, my Appalachian house, I have a, a shed. Um, I call it my she shed, uh, you know, man cave, she shed. Uh, it's, it is not cute or fashionable. It's, it's strictly and purely utilitarian. It is a, a shining example of redneck architecture. So uh, my shed was constructed by the guy who two times before me lived there. He lived in his trailer. He was viscerally hated by my neighbor, Rabbit. And so he, he built this thing, and it's the plywood floor is held up by various and sundry cinder blocks underneath. And so to put anything in there is kind of like that scene from Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade, where if you step wrong, you, like, fall through and die. Um, that's kind of so it's, it's always exciting to put stuff in there. Or if you want to get anything out... Before you stick your hand anywhere, you best kick it first. All right? Because there's a copperhead or some real scary-looking spider that's going to bite you. All right? And so there, there are places in my house that I love to show off. Right? I've got my, my hipster music wall. It's very cool. My nice concrete island in my kitchen. My old-school wood stove. Love that. Super fun. Um, you know what I don't show to people ever is my shed. Right. In fact, I think I've adopted some southern sensibilities. I would, I would lay down and die before I would show company to my nasty, horrible shed. Because uh, we all have spaces in our lives, physical spaces, where we hide stuff, don't we? Don't lie to me. I know you've got that room in your house or the garage or whatever it is where your in-laws call and say, we're going to be there in 15 minutes, where you, like, panic stash all that junk. Like, we do that. Um, but it's not just with our physical space that we do that. Because actually my shed is a pretty accurate reflection of my inner world too. Um, there are some grimy, nasty, chaotic, messy rooms in my heart that I would lay down and die before I would let somebody see. There are some pretty venomous memories that, that will bite if you, you hit them accidentally. And there are piles of hurt and shame and sin over just stupid stuff that I've done that I try to ignore, but they get bigger and bigger and bigger, and uh, it seems like you just never can quite get it all cleaned out. That's kind of what goes on in the human heart. And, and here's the thing, is hurt and sin and shame, they actually take up space in you. I don't know how, like, the science of this works, but I, it, it's true. There's something about how Hurt and sin and shame can actually take up physical space in your head and in your heart. And so the problem with that is you're a finite creature. You only have so much room to spare. And so when you're all filled up with that, that scene you keep playing over and over in your head from whatever stupid thing that you did, when all that, that junk just piles up, you don't actually have room in you for other things. Like joy, peace, patience gentleness, right? The stuff that you want to have room for. And here's the really good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to get the hurt out. Jesus became a little baby so he could get all that hurt out of you. Like I said, he's big now. He can, he can carry that stuff right out of you, right out of your life. And it, you should be warned, it's no joke, <laughs> It's not for wimps. Healing is really hard uh, because it requires vulnerability, exposing those messy, grimy places that we would rather hide. And we hate that. I personally deeply hate it. If I spend too much time with an emotion I don't like, I, I get what I call my vulnerability hangover. It's like you wake up the next day and your head hurts. Actually, everything hurts. You're kind of nauseous. You want to go back to bed. 
Um, that's how I respond to that kind of stuff. And there's a reason for that, and it goes way back to the beginning of the Bible story, which is why we can't have nice things. Uh, and deep down, we know we're not what we should be. We're just not. No matter how hard we try or how hard we don't, <laughs> we're just not. And we're alienated, and we're ashamed of that. That doesn't freak Jesus out, though. In fact, he proved that because he spent his first day on, in the world as a human being in a nasty, grimy little manger. Jesus is not afraid of the mess. And not only is he not afraid of it, that's where he wants to be. Because he wants to help you clean that junk out and create room in your heart and in your life for the freedom he brings, the peace, the love, the joy, all that stuff that we want to be, but we just can't get there by ourselves. Because we can't. There's too much going on. But Jesus can. And so there is a habit that I want to invite you all to that's super helpful. Christians have been doing this for 2,000 years. It's called confession. Um, Maybe you've heard of that before. If you grew up in Catholicism, you may be a little bit more familiar with it. But um, here's actually how we think about it. There's two phases. Uh, And this habit's really important because it's how we invite Jesus in to get the hurt out and clean stuff out. And I said, there's, there's, it's a two-phase process. So phase one is the conversation you have with God. And I, I heard a good quote recently from a smart guy that said, prayer's not a place to be good, it's a place to be honest. So this is where you tell God what's on your mind, what you feel, what you really think, the stuff that you've done that you're not proud of. And you ask him to give you his Holy Spirit to change your heart and clean you out because you can't do that on your own. That's it. That's all there is to it. It's not complicated. Uh, and right there... In that moment, you are wrapped up in the grace and forgiveness of God. Just like that. Phase two, though, is really important. Phase two is where you take everything that you just told God, you tell another person. And here's why. It's, it's not because you need somebody else to be forgiven. God's got that covered. He doesn't need help, right? But you do need another person to experience that forgiveness and the freedom that comes from that. You need to look in another person's face when they look at you and say, yeah, that was stupid, and Jesus loves you, and he forgives you, and he will finish the work. He will bring to completion the work that he started in your life and in your heart. Cleaning out your internal sheds, that is a team sport, people. It is a lot of work. (laughs) You need help. (laughs) So do I, right? We need to invite other people into that process. And so by practicing confession first with God, but then with another believer, whether that's a friend or your spouse or a sibling or a mentor, whoever that person is in your life, that helps you bit by bit chip away at that junk and brings you into a space of freedom, which is why Jesus showed up in the first place. Uh, So I'm going to invite us to, first of all, a prayer if you would feel so inclined to pray this with me and to do this, this is phase one. This is talking to God. And what I'd love for y'all to do is this week, again, everything that you just tell, that you tell God this morning, tell somebody else, some trusted person, and ask them to remind you afterwards that you are loved and forgiven by Jesus. And he's not done with you, and he's got it covered. So join with me in this prayer. Jesus, we're sorry. We've sinned against you in things that we've thought, things that we've done, haven't done, things that we've said. We've not loved you with our whole hearts. We haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. 
And Jesus, we need you to give us your Holy Spirit and change us on the inside because we can't do that on our own. And God, here are some of the memories in the quiet of our hearts that we are particularly ashamed of, these memories and these actions. Jesus, have mercy on us and forgive us so that we can delight in the life that you bring and live in your freedom to the glory of your name. Amen.